good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, we are... We are very close to the end of this letter, Romans chapter 16. Our text this morning will be verses 21 through 23, verses 21 through 23. And so when you find that, Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 21, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word. Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 21 down to verse 23. We believe these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Let's pray together. Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Therefore, we now come to your word, seeking these words of eternal life. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a mind to understand, give us a heart to believe, give us a spirit to obey. Guide us with your counsel, O Lord. May the preaching of your word be accompanied by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. In our text this morning, we find ourselves in the last of Paul's greetings to the church at Rome. And I think you could kind of think of this if if you're looking at the beginning of chapter 16. In verses 1 through 16, we have a list of people who Paul knows that the church at Rome knows, and he is greeting them on his behalf through this letter that's coming to Rome. In verses 21 through 23, we have what seems to be, and what I would argue is, Paul's traveling party or Paul's host while he is in Corinth. And so we have this list of brothers who he, he says, greet the church at Rome. And you can almost imagine this, this, this thought, right? When Paul is, is dictating this letter and he looks around or he thinks about his day and he sees these, these men whom he has lived his life with and he says, they want to greet you too. Which goes back, I think, to our our uh, discussion of Romans chapter 15, when we saw the way that Paul loved the church at Rome, even though he had never met them. We have brothers here who most of them most likely had never met any of the brothers at the church at Rome, and they want to give this greeting in the Lord because they understand the, the reality that the church that is saved by Christ is a church that spans nations and times, and it's a, it's a church that, that is bigger than we can imagine, and yet we all have Christ in common. And so Paul here in verses 21 through 23 gives us the greetings from the brothers who are seemingly with him. And I want to argue this morning that there is, based off of what we see of how these brothers greet the church at Rome, that there is a type of people that the gospel creates. 
That as we have studied over the past several years, this book of Romans, it would be ludicrous to believe that the gospel that we have proclaimed from this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, that the gospel that we have enjoyed together, that the gospel that we have that we have claimed is our only hope in life and death, that this gospel would be able to just sit on a shelf is ludicrous. It's ludicrous to believe that these glorious truths of the gospel only exist to create some kind of head knowledge, some kind of orthodox belief that goes no further than the head or the heart and doesn't enter the mouth and the hands. And so Paul's greeting here, I believe, reminds us, as we've talked over the past several weeks about having the the, the flavor of heaven, right? The, the thought of heaven, the citizenship of heaven in our minds and on our lips. As we use Christian language, as we use a Christian accent, I think Paul's greeting here reminds us that the gospel that he proclaimed in this letter has played out in the life of the church in the way that he describes his greetings. That these glorious doctrines of the Christian faith don't merely belong on a shelf, but rather they, they live themselves out in how we live as the church in the world. And I also want to add something that we say very often here is that much of preaching is reminding. We're not really interested in finding a lot of new doctrines because that's scary because probably heretical. But when we look here at Romans 16, there's nothing here that, that I want you to hear and say, wow, that, that's something I've never heard before, right? We're just reminding one another of the truths of the gospel played out in the life of the church. And so some of what you hear will be a review and praise the Lord for that because we need to hear them over and over and over again. And so the question this morning that I want to ask of this text and what I think this text shows us is what kind of people does the gospel create? What kind of people does the gospel create? When the gospel takes root in our hearts, what kind of people does it create? And I think in our text this morning, we see five different characteristics of the people the gospel creates. And so I'm going to give you the roadmap and then we'll work our way through them. I think the gospel creates... First, commissioned people. Second, close-knit people. Third, Christian people. Don't say duh. You'll see where I'm headed when we get there. Fourth, a diverse people. And fifth, a hospitable people. So first, commissioned. Second, close-knit. Third, Christian. Fourth, diverse. Fifth, hospitable. And so let's look at our text, shall we? Number one, the gospel creates a commissioned people. Verse 21 uh, says to us, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, so do Lucius and Jason, and so Sopater, my kinsman. As we look at our text this morning, we see first that the gospel creates a commissioned people. Paul calls Timothy, and we've looked at this back in chapter 16, verse 3, when Lawson uh, preached to us about uh, Prisca and Aquila in verse 3, where it says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Paul calls Timothy here his fellow worker, which quite literally we could take to say one who labors with another in furthering the cause of Christ. And so Paul here is, is really giving us this picture of what it means to be a fellow worker. And I love that through the New Testament, we have this same exact word used all throughout the letters of the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks of Timothy, same man. So Paul says here, Timothy, my fellow worker. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, he says that Timothy is God's co-worker, same word there, fellow worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. These verses together seem to present 
a picture of work in the kingdom of God as something that is begun by God and empowered by the Spirit of God that he uses the means of the body of Christ to accomplish. And I love the way Paul uses this word throughout the New Testament, and not just Paul, but other authors. What we see in this word, fellow worker, is we see this picture of a Christian community in which we are co-workers or fellow workers doing, I think, three things. And this is what the, the witness of this word used throughout the New Testament really proves for us. It's used in three different ways. The first way it's used is to spread the gospel. So people are called fellow workers as they are laboring side by side in the work of the gospel, spreading the gospel to those who do not believe. That would be called a fellow worker, a co-worker. Second, it's used to be an encouragement to Paul. Paul, and we'll see in just a moment, Paul uses this word for those who have taken special care to care for him. And then third, Paul uses this word for those who take special care to encourage the church. So for example, in Philippians 4.3, Paul is asking the church at Philippi to implore two women there to agree in the Lord. And this is what he says they have done. He says, Philippians 4.3, they have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And there's so much there, right? This idea that, that as the people of God, we are laboring side by side, working together as co-workers, as fellow workers for the sake of the gospel. They've labored side by side with me in the gospel and the, with, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. In Colossians 4, Paul says that some men were, quote, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. That's, that's Colossians 4.11. They're among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. In 2 Corinthians 8.23, Paul says this of Titus. He is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. For whose benefit? Let me mess with this for a second. All right. For whose benefit? For the benefit of the church at Corinth. In 3 John, we see John use the word to describe those who support the missionaries when he says, therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Philemon, in Philemon, Paul addresses Philemon as, quote, a fellow worker. And he sends greetings from other fellow workers. That's in Philemon 1 and verse 24, which gives us this fuller picture of what Paul means when he calls Timothy a fellow worker. He seems to see this, this idea of being a fellow worker as someone who is laboring together to, to further the cause of Christ as a partnership, not just between certain believers and other believers, but between and among all believers in Christ. That all of us, as he says, Timothy is God's co-worker in 1 Thessalonians. This idea is that, is that he sees all of us, Paul sees every single one of us as in a partnership in Christ with God and with one another, with God who started the work in us and who will bring it to completion, and with one another as fellow workers in that same work. So for the salvation of the lost, for the encouragement of the believers, he sees this work in the gospel, this people that the gospel creates as a commissioned people. And I think we have a really great example of this in the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you want to hold your place here in Romans and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5 and down to verse 9, we see this in action in the life of Paul. And Paul's addressing this 
this reality that at the church at Corinth, people were kind of creating factions and they were, they were interested in certain teachers and not other teachers. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 through 9, is addressing some of this. And I want you to see how he talks about being fellow workers, because the language is here too. This is what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. Same word. You are God's field, God's building. How does Paul described both himself and Apollos. I love this because when he says they're fellow workers, he says that they are servants. Verse 5, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They're fellow servants. Servants of who? Well, servants of Christ. Servants of Christ who did what? It says servants of Christ through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. To go one step further, it's not that Paul and Apollos are in in competition with one another, but rather they're fellow workers together. They're servants of Christ for the church at Corinth. And he says, God is the one who gave the increase. And so using the same word that we find in Romans 16 to speak of Timothy, Paul says that he and Apollos are both fellow workers for the sake of the church at Corinth, servants of God. Why does this matter? Because I think this gives us a fuller picture. When, when Paul says that Timothy, his fellow worker, greets them, I think there's a fuller picture here that we, now that we have the full understanding of the scriptures, the, the completed word of God, what we see here from this, this use of this word fellow worker is that there, there seems to be in view a field, a field in which some plant and some water And yet God is the one who gives the increase. He's the one who assigns how and when and whose testimony the church at Corinth believed. He's the one who who is, is sovereign over those things. And we have a picture here of how the gospel works itself out. That we as fellow workers, we 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 work together and we we plant seeds and we water those seeds, and God gives the increase. And Paul seems to give us this picture of how the gospel works because we are a commissioned people that God has sent out into the field to plant the seeds and to water, and he is the one who provides the increase. And this is exactly what Paul prays for the church at Philippi when he says in, in Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Don't discount the work that Christ does through you in his kingdom by pouting because it's not the work the person next to you is doing. He says, I, there's some who water, there's some who plant. God's the one who gives the increase as he assigns. And so often we discount the, the work that Christ does through us in the kingdom because we're upset that it's not what he's doing through the next person. When we see brothers and sisters enter those waters and are baptized, our, our minds and our hearts should soar in rejoicing. There are some who plant seeds, and there are some who have been planting seeds for years, and, and you still have not seen the increase, and yet we rejoice 
There are some who, who water, and they are your fellow workers. There are some who sell all that they have and move to a place where Christ has never been named, and they are your fellow workers. There are some who commit to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and faithfully preach the gospel to them day after day after day for years, and they are fellow workers. There are some who live the Christian life as businessmen, and they share the gospel with their co-workers and their fellow workers. There are some who sacrificially give of their financial means to those who are selling all they have and moving across the world and their fellow workers. There are some who uniquely encourage the saints around them through intentional hospitality and they are fellow workers. There are some who wake up at 5 a.m. every Monday and meet with a new struggling Christian and they are fellow workers. There are some who use their evenings to encourage brothers and sisters in marriages that are struggling and they are fellow workers workers. We could sit here all day and, and look at the ways that the Lord uses his people to, to preach the gospel to the lost, to encourage the saints with the gospel. We could sit here all day and look at example after example after example. And what I want to communicate to you is you look here and you say, that's Paul and Timothy. They have names that people know. They have names that are famous, that we are, we are aware of them Years and years and years later, and I would argue to you that you in Christ are fellow workers. That if the church is, is truly what Christ says it is, then it means that we are all fellow workers. That those of you and, and all of us in this room who will live and die and be forgotten in two generations, most likely, are fellow workers in this kingdom. And we have a peace in it. Whatever that peace is in your own life, that you have that peace, that you are a fellow worker. If I could go one step further about why this matters, about why we ought to think of one another as fellow workers in the gospel, I would remind you that we are fellow workers in the gospel because of all of the things that Paul said in the first half of this letter are true. That we are fellow workers in the gospel because there is, in fact, a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness through faith. Because there is, in fact, a salvation, not by works but of our own, but the works of Christ. That we are actually given a new nature, that he has actually adopted us into his family, that he has actually made us heirs with Christ, that those whom he called will actually be justified and will be glorified. We are a commissioned people, and we are a commissioned people with a gospel that actually saves, with truth that actually encourages, and with a God who actually conforms us to the image of his Son. And so when Paul says that Timothy is a fellow worker, and we look around and we see our brothers and sisters as fellow workers, we're, we're reminded that we're not just out here throwing seed that's, that's dead and has no opportunity to come to life. That we're not out here just encouraging with encouragement that is empty. We, we, have, we have truth that changes people, that makes people brand new. We have encouragement that actually holds weight. It's not just empty empty sayings out into the dark. We have encouragement that is true in Christ that we can give to our brothers and sisters. We have, we have actual truth from the scriptures that will spur us on to godliness. We are a commissioned people. And we're a commissioned people. The gospel creates a commissioned people based off of the truth that the gospel itself teaches. Second, 
the gospel creates a close-knit people. If you look at verse 21, I love the picture. I think many commentators kind of imagine this in, in their own thoughts on these verses, that in verse 21 when it says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, so do Lucius and Jason, and so Sopater, my kinsman. There seems to be this kind of imagining that Paul is, is dictating this letter and he's looking around the room at the brothers who are with him. And I, I think that as we look at these verses and all of the names that are mentioned, and you can look back at, verse, at the rest of the verses in the beginning of chapter 16 and see all of these names who are mentioned, the gospel doesn't only create a commissioned people, but the gospel creates a people that is close-knit. He's giving us this, this vision of the, the men who are traveling with him. And we see most of these fellow workers mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. For example, Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, uh, Luke records for us this about, and you'll, you'll notice some names that are the same from our text today. Acts chapter 20, verse 1 says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Verse 4, So Peter, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead of and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. As Paul is here, most, most scholars agree in Corinth, writing the, the, the letter to the Romans, these men are here with him. And I want to kind of just work through some of the names that we see, because we, for many of these men, we have other understandings of them from elsewhere in the New Testament. And so beginning with the first name that he gives, Timothy. Beginning with Timothy, who was arguably Paul's, I would argue, closest companion, Paul lists out his fellow workers. And Timothy, he calls, if you, if you look at the rest of the testimony of the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 1, he calls Timothy his child in the faith and a beloved child. In Acts 16, you can see the, the testimony of how Paul and Timothy met. And Paul, it says he came to Derbe and Lystra, and there was a disciple there named Timothy. He was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And it says that he basically took Timothy with him. And verse 5 of Acts chapter 16 says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Paul's relationship with Timothy, which if we could read at, at length in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, this relationship that really just jumps off the page at us, the, the relationship that Paul had between Timothy. Many people have used this relationship in the, uh, in the kind of history of Christianity to discuss this relationship that Titus 2 pictures of an older man and a younger man, which I think is fair. When Paul calls Timothy his fellow worker and his child in the faith, his beloved child, he's conveying that there is this familial affection from an older man to a younger man where he is teaching him the ways of Christ, where he is leading him in discipleship, and Timothy is learning from him. And ultimately, what do we see? We see Timothy go on to, to, to do the work of the ministry and, to, and to, to lead in the church. And so Paul here commands Titus, as we understand in Titus 2, the older men ought to 
lead the younger men, to train them in godliness, to show them what it looks like to be a godly man, that the older women living as examples of godliness godliness, are to train the younger women in godliness. And I think this is some of the best advice that I got early on in ministry. And one of the best things that was modeled for me was that as I was starting out in pastoral ministry, someone said to me, if you're doing pastoral things where it's appropriate, never go alone. Take someone with you. And as I've thought about that this week, I've thought about how that was really great advice. And it's really great advice for all of us. That that some of the best things that we could do as brothers and sisters in the work of the ministry that we're all being equipped to do is to do them alongside other brothers and sisters. What do I mean? What I mean is, if you're going to make a meal for someone, invite someone else to come help you make it and deliver it. Because you can talk of Christ on the way. You can encourage the brothers and sisters that you're taking the meal to with, with more faces. If, you're, if you are having a, a dinner with your unbelieving neighbors, bring a couple brothers and sisters along so they can see the love of the church on display. If you're visiting a saint in the hospital and they're all right with it, bring someone else with you so they can be even more encouraged. We see in this picture of Paul and Timothy some some brothers who lived life together, an older brother pouring his life into a younger brother and and bringing him along in the ministry that he's doing. The the church is a close-knit people. But it's not just Timothy. If you look at verse 21, he mentions Timothy. But then he mentions Lucius, and, and we don't really know a ton about Lucius. There's some disagreement on who he is, but we do know some about Jason. And Jason, we find out about in Acts chapter 17. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Thessalonica. He's preaching in the synagogue and the Jews get angry. They create a mob and they come to where they know Paul is staying and he's staying in the house of Jason. And so they come to Jason's house and they attack it. And unable to find Paul and Silas, the men of the city, it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And it's like, yeah, all of that's true. I get why you're mad, but that's true. None of that is not true. That they've come and they've been, they've been saying that there is another king and his name is Jesus. And so Jason is there receiving this kind of blow in place of Paul and Silas. And so Jason is actually is, is attacked and detained and he has to pay them to get away. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking about the relationship that had to be formed. Staying in this house, knowing, that, knowing this possibility, knowing the way in which the gospel was was so offensive to these Jews. And Jason, having been dragged out of his house, literally shedding blood with Paul as a result of the gospel, that there there is quite possibly, to make the point that we are a close-knit people, there's quite possibly nothing like suffering that draws the people of Christ together, that knits us together. And we've seen this in our own midst, and we see this, this, examples of this Uh, we could talk about all day. That Paul and Jason's bond 
you can only imagine, was tightened through their suffering together. That Paul and Jason are here and they're, and they're together in this traveling party most likely. And this is the, the past that they have together. And they're, they're encouraged by one another, by their willingness to be obedient, even to, even to the, the point of being dragged out of their home. That they're bearing with one another, that they're praying for one another, that they're, they're standing with one another in these difficult circumstances. That there is nothing quite like suffering that binds us together in this way. But not only do we see Jason and, and Timothy, we see, if you keep looking down, it says, and Sosipater, this man also mentioned in Acts chapter 20. And Paul mentions Timothy, Lucius, and Jason in this verse, but then he closes here with Sosipater, and he says something about these men in general. He says that they are his kinsmen. His kinsmen. So if you see in verse 21, and Sosipater at my kinsmen. There's some disagreement about what this means when he calls them his kinsmen. Some people think that it means that they were actually blood related. Some people think that it means that he's saying they're brothers in Christ. And then others think that it means that they are men who are of Jewish background. And I would argue that third, uh, that third idea, that they are men of Jewish background. And I do that because this is the word kinsmen. This is the language that Paul uses in Romans 9 to speak of the Jews. He calls them his kinsmen according to the flesh. And so Paul here is, is mentioning that these brothers who are brothers in Christ also have come from Jewish descent. And when I think about how Paul calls Sosipater and Jason and Lucius his kinsmen, I'm reminded of how powerful the gospel is to save both Jew and Gentile, to make a family in Christ that is more tight-knit, a family in Christ that is, is more tight-knit and it has more reason for unity and has more reason for fellowship than any other connection that we might have. But he doesn't end there. If you jump down, and we'll come back to Tertius in a moment, but in verse 23, Paul mentions Gaius. Gaius is mentioned in Acts chapter 20. He also very possibly in 1 Corinthians 1.14 could be the Gaius who is mentioned as one of the only two people that Paul baptized at Corinth. Paul says in verse 23 that Gaius is his host, the one who graciously allows him to stay in his home. And I don't know about you, but I know that there is something about staying together under one roof that, that knits you close together. And he says that he is staying, Gaius, as his host's, is, is allowing him to stay with him. And then we see Erastus. After Gaius is listed, Erastus is listed, and we really don't know much about Erastus. And if you're interested in looking into it, there's, there's a, a, some theories about who Erastus is, and, and there's like one stone in Corinth with the name Erastus on it that a lot of people just uh, have kind of gone with, and you can check that out. But Erastus, what we do know about him, is here in verse 23, that he is the city treasurer or the city steward. And we also know from Acts chapter 19 that in Acts chapter 19, 22, it says, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So we also know that he traveled with Paul. And we have this list of names and there's all of these men and we could, we could sit here and, and try to figure out who they are and how, how they work together. But I'm reminded and I think, and my fear is, because we've said this over and over and over again from this pulpit, my fear is that you'll see this point and you'll think that I'm stretching the truth of this text, that 
to say that the gospel creates a close-knit people. But can you imagine? Can you imagine the life that they lived together? Can you imagine the the reality that these men are saved and most of the people, especially if they're if they're Jews, most of the people that they know look at them and, and say that they're heretics and they say that, that this is not the belief that, that they had grown up believing and they, they lose their connections and many of them lose their jobs and they and they lose members of their families who have walked away from them. And can you imagine this Christian community living in such close-knit ways? And we ask, like, is, is it just because of the circumstances? And I would argue, no. The gospel creates a close-knit people. The gospel creates a people who live life together. And we can't discount the power in that. Because the reality is, and we've said it over and over again from this pulpit, but it's true that you will not make it in the Christian life as a lone wolf Christian. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. When Christ saved you, he ushered you into his church and his design for you in in your Christian life is that you live it in the context of the local church. We've said this again and again, and we won't stop. Because I believe that many of the anemic Christians that we see and know And maybe the anemia that you yourself have felt at times is a result of keeping brothers and sisters at arm's length and never living in true close-knit community. Paul poured all of this wisdom and knowledge into Timothy. And how did he do it? He did it by living beside him and carrying him along and talking and praying for one another and bearing one another's burdens. These brothers traveled together and they they were in close quarters. They encouraged one another. They got to admonish one another in church. This is what we are called to. We are called to be a close-knit community where we know one another. Because we can hide in the dark. But when we're close and when we live together in community, we're able to do the things that Christ has commanded us to do. And I think on the other side, because I think we're often, as human beings, pendulum people. And on one side, we can say, I don't want to, I don't want to live in community. I would rather kind of be off on my own. On the other side, we, we can be people who are, who are running headlong into community and romanticizing it. Pretending like Paul and Timothy and Jason and Sosipater and, and Lucius just got along all the time. That there was never a moment when Paul had to turn around and say, you need to repent of that. That there was never a moment when when Lucius had to turn around to Paul and say, you need to repent of that. That there was never a moment where they had to say, I see this pattern in your life and it's, it's concerning me. How can we put sin to death? How can we, how can we repent? I don't want to romanticize this because it was difficult. I mean, you have people coming for their lives. But it's also difficult because it was a group of sinners living together who haven't been, who haven't been glorified fully. We see this lived out even in our own church. And we would love to see this lived out in our own church. We love it to see, to be encouraged by the fact that older saints are inviting younger saints into their lives, to see the ways that they love their families, to see that the ways they repent to their families, to see the ways that they reconcile after, after a disagreement or after a moment of repentance. 
Older men, the younger men need to see how you can conduct yourself in your life, at your job, with your family. Older women, the younger women need to see you model godliness to them, to text them, to invite them over, to, just to talk. It doesn't have to be anything super fancy. Older saints, younger saints need to see how you discipline your children in love, how you care for your spouse, how you care for your friends, how you care for your immediate family, how you sacrifice your selfish desires for those around you. Never discount the power. Never discount the power in merely rubbing shoulders with the believers who are godly in your vicinity. Never, never discount the power of that. We need one another daily, and it's not something that, that I think we need to formalize. It's, it's just the reality that we live life together. The gospel creates a people who has to live life together. Third, the gospel creates a Christian people. And I told you earlier not to say, duh, but I think that this is a, a very important point. The gospel creates a Christian people. Not only does the gospel create a commissioned people and a close-knit people, but it creates a Christian people. Verse 22 is one of those verses that is, is it just jumps out the pay, off the page at you because it's so different. So we have this, this flow, really, of language. And then the language completely changes in verse 22. And it says, I, Tertius, and we're like, wait, I thought Paul was writing this. He is. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Very literally, the language in verse 22 says, or communicates, that Tertius, which Tertius as a, as a name just means the third, which I think is awesome if you want to start, like if you haven't had kids yet and you just want to start naming them by number, probably be a lot simpler. Tertius, the third, who wrote this letter, literally means having written down this letter. So not merely writing it, but writing it down, greets you in the Lord. So, so Tertius identifies himself. And I think this is, this is amazing on multiple levels, and we don't have time to get into all of it today. Go to a small group and you can discuss all of those awesome things. But in verse 22, Tertius says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. He identifies himself as Paul's scribe or Paul's editor. There's a fancy word for it that I struggle to pronounce, but I think it's amanuensis. And it's, his, it's the person who he, who he dictated, most likely, the letter of Romans 2. Imagine being Tertius. You're sitting here and you're writing down with proper grammar and spelling all of the things that Paul is saying to you. You get to, you get to hear it firsthand and you're writing it down for the people of God. And there's just, there's so much beauty built up in that. But, but think about this. This, this verse is what it seems to be a moment of turbulence in the text because we have Timothy. This is Paul speaking. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. We have in verse 23, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. And in the middle, it's like a pause. And he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter down, greet you in the Lord. And I really thought that I was thinking far too deeply into this. And then I was reading John Gill's exposition of Romans chapter 16. And this is what he says. He says, the sense is that his salutation, this is Tertius' salutation, that his salutation was not a mere form, nor only concerned their temporal good, but their spiritual welfare, that he wished them well in the Lord, that they might have much communion with him and larger measures of grace from him. Tertius, 
gets to interject here. I'm not, I, I would never believe or say that Paul had no idea. He obviously knew. And Tertius gets to interject here and he says, I want to greet you in the Lord. I was thinking about Tertius as a man who's writing down the things that Paul is dictating. And there is, a, there is an ability that we all have to think about the things that we do, especially the things that we do for work, and divorce them from the reality, the greater reality of who we are in Christ. And Tertius doesn't merely say, I greet you. He doesn't, he doesn't really, literally, he doesn't just say, I wrote this letter down. He says, I, Tertius, greet you in the Lord. I want to remind myself and I want to remind each of us the, 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 the way that who we are in Christ affects everything that we are and do. Tertius is a copy editor. He takes what is dictated and makes sure that it, it is, is formed in the, in the correct grammar and spelling. And he, he takes what is dictated and makes sure it looks right on paper. He's a copy editor. And yet Tertius is a copy editor to the glory of God. And we, as believers in Jesus, Colossians 3, 23 and 24 reminds us that, that we are to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That we do what we do for the glory of God. And so Tertius is copy editing to the glory of God. And Paul is making tents to the glory of God. And Erastus is the city treasurer to the glory of God. And you and I are doing whatever we do to the glory of God. And he has this this language, this accent of Christ on his lips. He says, I greet you in the Lord. And we're reminded that our Christianity, our relationship with Christ has, has, has more to do with our lives than simply what we do on Sundays at 1030, that it is the, it is the, the axis on which the rest of our life turns. So the gospel creates a Christian people. Fourth, the gospel creates a diverse people. If you look at verse 21 all the way down to verse 23, what we see and, and what I want to point out is that the, the Christian community here is depicted as this vibrant community of different types of people. And I know that you have in your mind one idea when I say diverse, but I want to show to you all of the different ways that the gospel creates a people who in no other way would come together. We see, and we've seen this already, and we've discussed it at length, that, that we see here in verse 21, age diversity. Paul and Timothy are here doing ministry together as an older man to a younger man, as an older man with a younger man. And I grew up hearing this cliche, and maybe you heard it too, that every Christian needs three relationships. Anybody ever heard this? Maybe. Every Christian needs three relationships. Everyone needs a Paul, an older man, someone who can build you up in the faith. Everyone needs a Timothy, someone that you can pour your life into. And everyone needs a Barnabas, a peer, someone to, to bear your burdens with you. And while I think that's kind of rigid to say that you only need one of each of those three things, I think the principle is still true. What we see in the gospel is that Christ creates a people who is, is diverse in age. That we look around at our brothers and sisters and there are brothers and sisters here who have been in the faith for weeks or for days. And there are brothers and sisters here who have been in the faith for 50 years. And we look and we say, there are things that we can glean from one another. And this isn't an accident. The gospel creates a people who, ha who are of all kinds of different ages. And this is a gift to his people. That when we look around at one another, we get to see all of the, the ways and the, and, the, and the different 
types of people who God has saved. The gospel creates a diverse people in the sense that there is a diversity of age in the kingdom, but also there's a diversity of gifts. We've seen this in, in Romans chapter 12, that we don't just see a diversity of age, and we see this really here in, chapters 20, in chapter 16, verse 21 through 23 as well. There's a diversity of all the gifts that God has given to certain people. Romans 12, verse 6, remind you in verses 6 through 8, it says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The church is a vibrant community who do not all have the same gifts. And we see brothers here in verses 21 through 23 who don't all have the same gifts. And yet when we exercise our gifts, the gifts that God has given to us, when we exercise those gifts by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God, the church, the church is served and Christ is glorified. Are you an encourager? The body needs you to encourage. Are you a servant? Serve selflessly. Are you gifted in acts of mercy? Be a cheerful giver. We've, we've looked at all of these Glorious text in Romans chapter 12, and this is a reminder. But, but think about the ways in which God uses the fact that we are not exactly the same to build us up together. That we flourish when people of different giftings exercise those giftings to the glory of God. And so we've seen age diversity, we see gift diversity. I think, third, we also see uh, what I'm calling ethnic diversity. We see that even in the Roman Empire, there are people of different ethnicities. And I'm reminded of, the, of this because in Ephesians chapter 2, what does Paul say about the gospel? It says, he says that one of the miracles of the gospel is that, quote, Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off and, and peace to those who are near, and that he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Romans 9 through 11 reminded us of, this, of us of this, that this is not some kind of Jewish gospel, that this is not some kind of gospel just for one type of people, but this is the gospel for, for those in the whole world. That, that Christianity is, is good news for all who believe, all who are brought in by Christ. That he himself broke down that dividing wall of hostility. And this is a glorious truth that we ought to always remember because there is, there is nothing in ourselves that could make this group of people mesh. There's nothing that we could bring to the table to make it a unified people. And yet Christ has created a people whose unity is himself in himself. We also see very quickly occupational diversity, and I think with that, socioeconomic diversity. I mean, we have brothers who are traveling around with no place to call home, and then we have a brother who has said, Gaius, who hosted the whole church at Rome in his house. The kingdom is wide. I love this picture that Paul presents for us. I think he presents it very succinctly in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Each of us is in Christ and belongs to Christ, which means that 
as those who have been saved by the grace of God in Christ, we look around this room and we see a group of people who are diverse in so many different ways. We see different ages. We see occupations that are different. We see gifts. We see ethnic heritages. We see socioeconomic statuses. We see all of these differences and we look at them and we say, but look how much, how much greater is our unity, our commonality in Christ. And then finally, the gospel creates a hospitable people. I think it's fascinating what Paul says about Gaius. He says, Gaius, who is host to me, verse 23, and to the whole church, greets you. Gaius here, mentioned in verse 23, is mentioned as the host to Paul, which seems, you know, fairly normal. Many of us have one extra room in our home. But then it says that Gaius is host to all the church at Rome. So he says, and really for the whole church, not Rome, sorry, the whole church, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church. Now, many people believe that what he's, what he's saying is that he has at some time hosted a bunch of people from the church at Corinth or from the church in general. And he just, this is a, this is an understanding that he is, he is a hospitable man. And it's almost like a hyperbole to say, well, he's always welcomed anyone in the church to come stay with him. Some argue that he in fact did host gatherings of the church at Corinth. And what we would understand by this point is that this is, this is not just one church gathering in Corinth. It's, it's churches across Corinth who are gathering uh, in groups. And so it could be that his house was big enough, who knows, to host every single member of the church in Corinth. Or it could be, and I think, I think most clearly what it means when it says Gaius who has hosted me into the whole church is that Gaius is known for his hospitality as a man who is happy and willing and excited to host any of the brothers and sisters and has hosted any of the brothers and sisters who have come his way. Gaius here is presented as a hospitable man. And we've, we've studied the idea of hospitality at length in Romans chapter 12. We've been reminded that hospitality in the Christian sense means that we make strangers friends, that we take those who are far off and we bring them near. And we've been reminded that, that the reality that we are a hospitable people is based not in our just goodwill that exists, but based in the fact that we are a people who have been brought near by Christ. That we who were enemies, not mere strangers, but enemies, have been brought in and not made merely friends, but made sons and daughters who have been given a new righteous garment, who have been brought into the, the family of God, who have been made heirs with Christ, been given, who, who have been given a future for eternity greater than anything that we could have imagined. And we've seen Paul command us to be hospitable in Romans chapter 12, verse 13. And we've discussed all of the myriad ways that we can live as hospitable people. But what I would really want to, to say about the fact that Gaius is pointed out here as a hospitable man is that the reality is all of us do not live in a mansion big enough to host all of the church. I would assume most of us, if not all of us, do not live in a mansion big enough to host all of the church. But each of us in Christ has taken the gospel the gospel has taken root in our hearts. Each of us has experienced the hospitality of Christ. Each of us has been brought near as an enemy and made into a friend. Each of us has something to share with our brothers and sisters. Some of you have a spare room. 
Some of you have a spare plate at dinner. Some of you have coffee. Some of you have a spare home. Some of you have time. All of us have time. We all have spiritual encouragement. We all have an evening every once in a while. We all have a myriad ways to be hospitable, and the gospel plays itself out for us. A gospel people creates a hospitable people because we have experienced hospitality in Christ that none of our hospitality can even compare to. And so if we are going to take this text and I think boil it down into, into one sentence, which is something we used to do a lot and we don't really do anymore, is to say that the gospel creates a gospel people. The righteousness of God has been revealed through faith, and we walk in faith, inviting others to, to throw themselves on Christ, to repent of their sins, and then encouraging our brothers and sisters in that. We've been redeemed by His grace, and we live as a community in Christ. Christ is redeeming the whole man, and there's nothing outside of his grasp. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility, and we get to live as one, as one people in Christ. And he has made enemies into friends, and we get to extend that hospitality toward one another. The gospel creates a gospel people. And I don't want you to leave here looking at this text and saying, man, I really need to be a more gospel-y person. I want you to leave here looking at this list and saying, none of this is possible. None of this is, is achievable. None of this is, is within the realm of reality unless Christ emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and took on the, the likeness of man, became a man, and lived a perfect life, accomplished all righteousness, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and rose from the dead and draws us in, into his grace. That none of this is possible without the gospel of Jesus. And we look at Romans 16 and we can't forget Romans 1 through 11 that shouted at us that there is, there is nothing that can be obeyed in this book apart from the power of Christ at work within you in the Spirit. And this kind of community that Paul mentions as he's greeting is not something that we can create if we just try hard enough. It's something that Christ creates in us through his gospel being played out in our lives. Let's pray together.